invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 2. We'll be looking there in just a few minutes. Galatians chapter 2. He had been with the agency for years and was one of their very best. He was liked and trusted by his immediate supervisor who thought he was doing a great job. But the scene changed dramatically when his secret came out in the early 90s. Aldrich Ames was a double agent, working against the United States on behalf of the KGB. In fact, Ames revealed the identities of several U.S. agents working in the Soviet Union, nine of whom were executed shortly thereafter because of his treachery. Suddenly, the CIA lowered the boom. No matter what they had previously thought of Aldrich Ames, the United States government responded quickly and decisively and firmly, prosecuting him to the fullest extent of the law. Why? Because Aldrich Ames had caused the death of several Americans and endangered the freedom of all Americans by his treachery. And we'd all agree, would we not, that anyone who jeopardizes the freedom, our freedom as Americans, ought to be dealt with severely. Amen? But it's interesting that in the church today, we are not so ready to fight for our liberty in Christ, for the freedom that we have through the gospel, Chuck Swindoll says, will go to the wall and square off against any enemy who threatens to take away our national freedom, but will not be nearly so passionate as Christians under grace to fight for our rightful liberty. Let enough legalists come aboard, and we will virtually give them command of the ship. We'll fear their frowns, We'll adapt our lives to their lists. We'll allow ourselves to be intimidated. And for the sake of peace, at any price, even though it may lead to nothing short of slavery, we will succumb to their agenda. We've begun, we're now, I think, in our third message as we work through a study on the book of Galatians. we're, We're just walking through this little letter to the Galatians. We've entitled this series, Radical Grace... The only real kind. If the grace you understand is not something absolutely radical and crazy, the chances are you don't have a grasp on the true gospel of Scripture. Paul writes this letter to the four churches which he established there in the province of Galatia. If you look in Acts 13 and 14, you can trace his first missionary journey And there he established four churches in the province of Galatia in Lystra, Derbe, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. And as he writes this letter to those four churches in particular, he's defending to them his apostolic authority. authority. He's, He's explaining to them in these first two chapters how he knows he's got the gospel right and why the false teachers among them are wrong. Tim Keller says of the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians is dynamite. In short, 
uh, in this short letter, Paul outlines the bombshell truth that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. That is, it's not only the way to enter the kingdom, it is the way to live as part of the kingdom. It's the way Christ transforms people, churches, and communities. The gospel, the message that we are more wicked than we ever ever dared to believe, but we're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope, creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth, for obedience, for love. It is about the gospel from A to Z. The whole of the Christian life is all about radical grace. But there were false teachers, as we mentioned, called the Judaizers that were saying it wasn't all grace. They were thankful for what Jesus had done on the cross and in the resurrection, but they said, you have to add to what Jesus did works of the Old Testament law. You have to add to what Jesus did the other stuff God in the past has told us to do. And when you combine all of that, then you can hope to be saved. Paul writes this letter with much vim and vigor to blast the live legalism to smithereens. He's not playing around. We've already seen that. He starts off this letter without any introduction, really, just very little introduction, no commendation to the Galatians, but right to the heart to a scolding. We read this verse earlier in Acts 15, verse 10. It's as Peter said at the Jerusalem council, so why are you now as he addresses legalistic Jews in his ranks, why are you now trying to out-God God, loading these new believers down with rules that crushed our ancestors and crushed us too? How many of you have ever been crushed by rules? Every one of you have been crushed by rules. In fact, the law of God, if nothing else, the law of God condemns us all. So this morning, I want to talk to you along these lines. The, the, the exhortation from this passage, Galatians 2, 1 to 5, is this. Don't try to out-God God. And here's the take-home truth. We must deal with grace-killing legalists who are trying to out-God God. That's the deal with legalists. They are trying to out-God God. Now, what does it mean to out-God God. That translation I read to you earlier, Acts 15.10, it's the message translation. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who did that translation, coined that, that word, and it's a good word. What does it mean, though? If we require something of ourselves or of others that God doesn't require concerning our relationship to him, then we are acting as if we know better than God. We are arrogantly trying to out-God God. Does that make sense? Everybody, can we, can we track along with that word? Can I use that word and you, and you understand what I'm talking about now? Pretty easy, right? God says this is true about how you relate to me, grace alone. The legalists come along and they say, no, I mean, grace is good, but you've got to add some works to that or you don't really have it. And in that moment, they are trying to out-God God. God says one thing, they're saying, we know better. Sometimes you and I say we know better. What does God say is required to have a relationship with God? Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16 tell us. You don't have to turn there. Just listen and be on the screen. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. How do we know? 
Paul writing here? We tried it. And we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. Would you agree with that? Isn't that true of the law of God? Perfect. Holy is the law of God. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, Paul says, even we as Jews have believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God. How? By trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. And that, my friends, is the gospel. Jesus said it so simply in John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever does what? believes in him, takes the grace, shall not perish, but have eternal life. We've been, we've been over the last couple of weeks, looking at this dangerous poison of legalism. Legalism is a grace-killing attempt to out-God God, who says we are saved by his grace in Jesus alone. And we must deal with grace-killing legalists who are trying to out-God God. Because as we've seen, a liter of water with a drop of arsenic is what? Water that's just a little messed up? Water that still might be refreshing? Water that still might hydrate your body? No, it is nothing short of poison. The lethal dose of arsenic is one one-hundredth of an ounce. That's just a couple of a drops. The least bit of works added to grace. Turn whatever you call gospel into poison. And it's happening every day. More about that later. How must we deal with legalists? Paul lays out the answer in no uncertain terms in Galatians 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's look at the text. You remember, beginning in in the middle of chapter 1 through about middle of this chapter, Paul is basically talking to us and giving us his testimony and sort of some of his ministry history. Where he got the gospel, which was directly from Jesus, we saw in chapter 1. By revelation, in fact, Jesus showed up to him and spoke face-to-face with him, gave him the gospel firsthand. And then also, how he related to other people in the body, those who are already apostles. And that's part of what chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is all about. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. This is his second trip. He'd been to Jerusalem once to visit with Peter John, James, all the big wigs in the, in the Jerusalem church. He'd been up once three years after he was saved. Three years after, not immediately, but three years after. Then 14 years later, he goes up again, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. That'll be key in a minute. I went in response to a revelation. That would be something God said to him. And meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Let me stop right there and just say this. Here's what we think. There's, there's varying opinions on exactly this, this, when this occasion that he mentions here in Galatians 2, when it occurs in terms of the timeline of, of Acts. Some people think it's a different visit than Acts 15. Some people think it's the, it's the Jerusalem Council there in Acts 15 that we, we kind of touched on uh, earlier. 
regardless, doesn't really matter. It was, they're both very similar instances if they're two separate instances. But it, for the sake of just ease this morning, we're going to say those are the same. This is the same visit. And so Paul says, I went up to talk to those who were kind of the big wigs of the Jerusalem church and told them the gospel I was preaching because I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Let me tell you what he doesn't mean by that. Paul was not unsure of his gospel, was he? I mean, he's already, at the beginning of this book, he's blasted the Galatians for turning to another gospel. He had the gospel clear. Why did he have it so clear? Why was he so convinced he had it right? Because Jesus had appeared to him face-to-face and given him the message. I mean, it doesn't get any straighter, more direct than that, amen? He was not questioning himself or doubting the validity of his message. What he means here about not running in vain is that he wanted to make sure that the disciples in Jerusalem recognized his message because, you see, they could hurt his ministry if they were saying something different. And he wanted to also go up there, and he was, I, think, I think he was pretty confident he would, he would get a, an affirmative answer. Yep, you've got the right gospel, Paul. But he wanted to be able to come back to Galatia and tell the false teachers, hey, Peter, James, and John, they all checked off on my message. Now quit telling lies that you've got their message and I've got another message. And so that's what this is all about. That's what this visit was all for. But Paul was pretty sharp. Verse 3 tells us he did a little something extra. He didn't just go have a conversation. He took an object lesson with him to Jerusalem. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. He had no Jew in him at all. He was absolutely Gentile, uncircumcised, and he went up and Peter, James, and John didn't insist that he get circumcised. So now Paul's got not just the word of the apostles, but a living illustration. They did not even compel. Titus came away from that place not feeling like he needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. This matter arose, verse 4, we're going to spend our time in these last two verses. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It's a matter of the gospel. We must deal with grace-killing legalists who are trying to out-God God. Paul gives us three clear actions here in verses 4 and 5 that we must take in dealing with grace-killers. First of all, in verse 4, expect grace-killers regularly. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. They were not innocent in their agenda. They were not coming just to see what it is they believed. They were coming in to understand it and then take away the freedom that the church had been convinced by Paul himself was theirs in Christ. You see, they've always been around. And grace killers always will be till Jesus comes. Jesus, you'll remember, he dealt directly with the Pharisees. Some of the strongest words in all of the Bible 
are Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, calling them whitewashed tombs. We saw a couple weeks ago, at one point he, te- he, he pronounced a woe against the Pharisees and he said, here's the deal. You go over land and sea to make converts and when you finally make them, you make them double the child children of hell that you are. You doubly damn them by your legalism. That's why it's a poison. Because it sounds so spiritual. It sounds so religious. It sounds so godly. And it's straight from hell. And so we should expect them. Paul dealt with the Judaizers. Listen to me. You and I are surrounded by many legalists, many grace killers here in the Bible Belt. And they even go by the name of Baptists sometimes. Yeah, I just said that. And I meant it. And there's some you know, and you need to tell them what grace is and what grace is not. Amen? That's that's better than I thought, boy. I didn't know what I'd get on that one. I mean, y'all kin to some of them. You understand what I'm saying? But here's the deal. Legalists sometimes don't know they're legalists. They really don't. So let's do a little self-test. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've heard enough in Galatians. I don't want to be one. Because Paul comes running at me in the first thing, in the first chapter, and he basically says, here's the deal. I don't know what your problem is, Kelly, but, you know, if I'm a legalist, I don't know what your problem is, but you've turned to another gospel. In chapter 3, you know what he's going to say to him? Who has bewitched you? I mean, you're under some kind of crazy spell because of the way you're thinking. So I don't want to be one. So here's a self-test. Are you consumed with religious things that are biblically, that are not biblically essential? Church traditions, ways you've always done things at East L.A.J. Baptist Church. Y'all all right? It's going to get worse before it gets better. I hope you are. The way mama did it, as sweet as mama was, the way mama And grandma raised you to think about God as loving and gracious as they were. Here's the thing. If it's not in the Bible, folks, it's not true. And it's not the gospel. Are you more worried about your personal standards in the gray areas of life? Everybody know what gray areas of life are? Some of you don't because they don't exist in your world. But let me tell you, they do exist in your world. And I'm kind of like you. I'm real black and white. But here's the deal. The world's full of gray areas. What does that mean? They're not right or wrong issues. Sometimes you think they are. Sometimes I think certain ones are. But the Bible doesn't say they are. So they're not. Can we agree? What's the authority for our lives? What the preacher thinks? What you think? No? What the Bible says. And if the Bible doesn't say it, don't you say that it's black. Don't you say that it's white. Say it's gray and leave it alone. More about that in a minute. If you answered yes to any of these questions, you're probably a legalist. Or legalism is brewing in your heart. And I don't know about you, but there's many times, by the grace of God, I start feeling it in my own life. And you see, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you'll feel it, you'll sense it, you'll know it, you'll smell it in yourself. Why? Because the Holy Spirit hates it. And he'll convict you of it. We must deal with grace-killing legalists who are trying to out-God God. Secondly, 
Not only must, must we expect grace killers regularly, we must resist grace killers completely. Verse 5, Paul says, We did not give in to them for a moment. When he started hearing this stuff about Jesus plus, Paul made some noise. Paul got up. He didn't just sit down and take it. He stood up and he said, whoa, we got a problem and we're going to deal with it right here and right now. That's not the gospel. You don't get one more second in this company of believers. You don't get any more press with your stuff. I don't want to hear any more of that because it's, it's a lie. It's heresy. It's, it's not the gospel. It's poison. And I love the Christ who died for me because he had to die for me because I couldn't do it on my own too much. And I love his people for whom he died who can't do it on their own too much to let you be spouting that poison all over the place. Chuck Swindoll said, trust me, legalists don't get the message if you're unsure and soft with them. You know, there's a lot of things we disagree on in the church. Amen? It's okay, you can amen that one as long as you did the other one long ago. Yeah, we just, just I mean, we're, we're, we're different people. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We love each other. But there's times I just, you know, I don't get you. You don't get me. You, the person to your left, you really don't get them. And the one to your right is even worse. I mean, you know, it, we're just different. And that's okay because God makes the body, he puts the body together with different gifts so that we can function and help each other and so forth. Amen? And how ought we to deal with those differences? Let's take that a step further. Even theologically, right? I mean, here's the deal. Some of you don't agree with my perspective on the sovereignty of God and salvation and some of these things, okay? You didn't think I knew that. Now you know that I know that you don't agree with me. And that's okay because I don't agree with you. But I love you, and maybe you still love me. But here's the deal. At the end of the day, those are things that we can disagree on, right? And what we should do, those are things we should love each other through. Let me just tell you, if you ever want to see me come unglued, it'll be on legalism. If this message series is, probably, is not the most passionate I ever preach, I will have failed. And I'm just going to tell you, if you're a legalist and you open your mouth around here and I hear it, I'm going to be in your face. That's just the way it is. Now, the deacons didn't know I was going to say that. <laughs> but they know the gospel and love the gospel and would back me in that. As soon as Paul smelled the aroma of hell in their legalism, he told them to shut up and no doubt explain with vigor the freedom from any sort of performance mentality that is ours in Christ. You see, he believed God, not religious people. And so he would not submit himself to their petty rules. He didn't let himself feel condemned for breaking their traditions. He didn't let anyone tell him that he couldn't know God if he ate and drank certain things. And Paul didn't let these grace killers intimidate anyone else either. And if you spew legalism and I get in your face, it's not just because for the glory of Christ who died for us, but it's also for the protection of this flock which God has put me in the position to do. Is your freedom precious enough to you that you will firmly confront petty people when necessary? 
In Galatians 5, verse 1, we're exhorted. Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. With all your might, church, resist legalists. Don't let anyone enslave you with the lie of Jesus plus anything. We must deal with grace-killing legalists who are trying to out-God God. Thirdly and finally, second part of verse 5, we must understand grace-killers clearly. We, we, we need to make no bones about what's at stake. We've already talked about it. I just want to read it and reiterate it. Paul says there in, in, in chapter 2, verse 5, we did not give in to them for a moment. Why? So that... Here our motivation. was. This is our motivation. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. If a legalist gets the floor for more than, than a second, if he's not taken out immediately when he starts talking, the gospel is threatened. And it must be preserved. The gospel is, is at stake. We have no hope of heaven apart from the gospel. It's called the good news for a reason. It's the only, finally, good news there is that God, who's holy, has been gracious to us in Christ. And given us what we could never earn or deserve on our own. This is no trivial matter. If we give in to legalism, we forfeit the only way of salvation that God has given. And we are left with no good news, but only a hell-bound human religion of works with Jesus' name attached, but with no meaning and no power. God, help us and keep us from that. We must deal with with grace-killing legalists who are trying to out-God God. Jerry Bridges writes and says, freedom and grace are two sides of the same coin. We cannot enjoy one without the other. If we are to truly live by grace, we must stand firm in the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. Again, Acts 15, 10. So why are you now trying to out-God God, loading these new believers down with rules that crushed our ancestors and crushed us too? Why? Swindoll says, believing grace is one thing. I believe it, don't you? Do you believe grace? Do you believe this message we're preaching this morning? Raise your hand. I mean, do you? I mean, if you don't, don't lie. <laughs> Just say you're a legalist. And we'll see you in the hall. <laughs> I'm coming for you. Believing grace is one thing. Living it is another. So here's two action points to help us apply what we've talked about today. How do we flesh it out? How, how does all this get down to your now? First of all, two things. Don't be guilty of trying to out-God God... First of all, by submitting to the fear of what others think. You see, fear of others is the passive form of out-godding God. Does that make sense? You give in to an out-godder and what they think. And in doing so, you give in to legalism. You live legalistically because you fear what somebody else thinks in one of these gray areas of life. Peterson says, without 
being aware of it. We become anxious about what others will say about us, obsessively concerned about what others think we should do. We no longer live the good news, but anxiously try to memorize and recite the script that someone else has assigned to us. Don't do it. Do not let others bind you with their rules, their standards, their personal practices when God doesn't make the same demands. Now, obviously, if somebody's telling you what the Bible says, how the Bible says, how Jesus tells us to live, then we ought to do that, amen? Now, hear me. Even obedience to Jesus is not part of the basis, the foundation, the, 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 the ground on which we stand before a holy God, Amen? Hello? Do you agree with that? I mean, we need to make, we got to clear that one up. Even your obedience as a Christian, it's not the basis of your salvation, right? Even to the stuff you're supposed to do. Don't let others bind you, certainly, in all those gray areas. Don't let others bind your conscience about beverages, food, clothes, activities, music styles. You continue the list of things that are not black and white in the word of the living God. Live in your freedom without fear of others. Now we can have a whole other sermon about loving one another in the gray areas and being sensitive to other believers for the sake of unity in the gray areas. There is a whole other sermon there. This is not that one though, right? I mean, you're clear on that. But there is a way in the gray areas sometimes that we do need to, to love each other. And there is a, the, but the motivation, hear me, the motivation for foregoing a particular thing or, or doing a particular thing instead of not doing it in a, in a gray area, the motivation in the body of Christ is love. Not saying, not thinking that if you do or don't do a certain thing, you will or will not be condemned before God. You see the difference? Okay, big difference. Another message. I like this guy's name, Mike Iaconelli. I'm glad it's not my name, but I like his name. Mike Iaconelli. Here's what he wrote. Petty people, legalists, are ugly people. They are people who have turned their eyes away from what matters and focused instead on what doesn't matter. The result is that the rest of us are immobilized by their obsession with the insignificant. It is time the church quit pretending that pettiness doesn't matter. Pettiness has become a serious disease in the church of Jesus Christ, a disease which continues to result in terminal cases of discord, disruption, and destruction. Petty people are dangerous people because they appear to be only a nuisance instead of what they really are, a health hazard. And legalism is pettiness. I was talking to someone just before this service started and their brother has been hurt by the church and, has, and, for, and for years has been out of the church and has yet to come back. Here's what I can tell you. He was not driven away from the church by the grace of Christ. He was driven away from the church by the pettiness, by the legalism, most likely, of people. A lost and dying world does not have time for legalistic pettiness amongst the people of the body of Christ. They need to see us be living and proclaiming freedom in the grace of Christ that they can personally know him by simple faith. We must deal with grace-killing legalists who are trying to out-God God. But hear me, even as we resist what they stand for, we must love the legalist. Amen? God does. 
just briefly think about what God did with a former legalist named Saul of Tarsus who became Paul, whose letter we're studying about the freedom of grace, who became one of the fieriest anti-legalists the world has ever known. He can change the legalist through your love and through grace. But we must oppose their message. Secondly and finally here, as far as action points, don't be guilty of trying to out-God God by judging others' spirituality based on human rules. That is, my own thoughts, convictions, standards, or the rules of somebody else. We saw the passive form of legalism. Legalism and self-righteous judgment is the out active form of out-godding God. Fear was the passive form of trying to out-god God. Legalism is the active form of out-godding God. I love this quote by a friend of Steve Brown's, the key life guy. Cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think you are. But cheer up, God's grace is a lot better than you think it is. Is your freedom and the freedom of others precious enough to you that you'll throw away your list of do's and don'ts concerning life's gray areas and allow others to enjoy life under the direction of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God while you do the same. Is it precious enough to you? Can you just let those rules and standards go? Here's a news flash for you. Pay close attention. The Holy Spirit is big enough and strong enough to straighten out that brother or sister, if they are truly wrong about that particular practice in their lives that the Bible is not explicitly clear about, but that gets you all worked up about. I mean, the last time I checked, the Holy Spirit does not need me to change a heart. And you can rest assured, friend, he don't need you either. Give it to the Spirit. Those gray areas, just let God deal with them if they're wrong. And as my grandma used to say, just mind your own little red wagon. I dare say that one of our primary, if not our greatest struggle, will always be standing firm in our freedom in Christ because there is a grace-killing, pride, self-righteousness in every person on the planet. It's in me. It's in you. We must deal with a grace-killing legalist who is trying to out-God God. Hear me, that lives in us first. Don't try to out-God God. Live in celebration of the fact that all of our supposed and attempted goodness is nothing but dung, Paul says, before God. But Jesus paid it all on the cross, and he is our complete righteousness. We are fully accepted by the Father if we trust Jesus. It's that simple. It's that beautiful. It's that amazing. It's that captivating. C.S. Lewis said, Grace substitutes a full, childlike, and delighted acceptance of our need, a joy in total dependence. I love this phrase. We become, because of grace, we become jolly beggars. You know, if you're a beggar, it's not a happy place to be, is it, usually? But in relation to the grace of Almighty God, it's a jolly place to be. To live at that place where you say, absolutely, I am 100% bankrupt apart from Jesus Christ, but because of Jesus Christ, I'm happy to be a beggar. 
I'm happy to be a beggar in need of the, the bread of life because what I know is that stuff's like manna and it'll keep me alive for eternity. Refuse to carry the load of trying to out God, God, and live as jolly beggars, honest about your own spiritual bankruptcy, but confident in the full forgiveness and complete righteousness that is yours by faith in Jesus alone. If we live that way, hear me, we won't have time to try to out-God God, nor will we waste time being victimized by others trying to out-God God. We'll stand firm in our freedom, and we'll boast in Jesus alone. Let's pray together.